with you here as we turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 27. We will not be saying that many more times. As a matter of fact, just once more. Next week, we will turn together to the book of Acts. In a few weeks' time, we will go back to the Old Testament and we will be looking at the book of Amos. But for this morning, we have Acts chapter 27 as our text. It's a lengthy text, but a rather invigorating and exciting story. So I would ask if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative Word. Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adamantrium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Cnidus. As the wind would not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow we could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear And thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, 
they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that we, they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow... Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some foods themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's ask for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word. That You would remind us that You are indeed the Sovereign Lord. And that You desire 
for us to follow after you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we near the end of the book of Acts, this chapter 27 is a help to us in understanding, I think, not just the book of Acts, but the Bible itself. You see, it is a good thing that we gather together each week to hear from God's Word, to hear God's Word explained and preached. But I think sometimes there is a difficulty that goes along with that. We have been moving at a relatively quick pace through the book of Acts, and we have spent, I don't know, a year in this book? Perhaps more. And that makes it difficult to get the stream of the narrative. And there is a challenge to us as Christians if the only way in which we are understanding and learning from our Bibles is in the worship service, that we miss the flow of the Scripture. We miss the story within the narrative. And this morning we are reminded in Acts 27 that the Bible is incredibly exciting. We don't need entertainment because the Bible is entertaining, in addition to being life-giving and teaching. This is an incredible story. It's a story told with great detail by a man who experienced it firsthand. This is another one of our we passages as Luke is back on the ship with Paul. And he describes this in in the way that only an excited eyewitness who was not experienced at sailing would describe. There There are some nautical terms and then there are others that are messed up. There, there is an excitement about all of the events that are going play, taking place because Luke is in the middle of it. And so I invite you this morning to, to go into the middle of this narrative. To understand that the Christian life is one that is tossed with storms here and there. That the Bible understands that and the Bible seeks to grip us with the story of the gospel. And to explain to us how God is at work in our midst. And so what we see here is the prelude to a shipwreck and a shipwreck itself. Paul and his companions were on much longer than a three-hour tour. It was likely to be about a week's journey, maybe a little bit more from Jerusalem to Rome via ship. But it doesn't turn out at all like they expect or desire. And so the first thing that we will do is we will look at this stormy trip. We'll look at the narrative and see the details, the build-up. What is going on here in this story And then after we understand the context of the story, we will look at Paul's engagement with the sailors, Paul's involvement in this journey. We will see it first in how he brings hope in the storm. And then second, we will see it as he brings encouragement in the storm. And I don't think it is a wrong or a bad thing to make then the leap to understand that even if we are landlubbers, 
And even if you, like me, get seasick on a small sailboat, that we still face storms in our lives, and that these principles, these principles of hope, these principles of encouragement, apply to us as well. Well, let's begin then by looking at this trip You may notice that there is a a color map included in your bulletins, especially for you children and those of you that are young at heart and want to follow along with the journey. Some of these names don't make much sense, but many of us understand and have seen pictures of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul begins then by starting out for Italy from Jerusalem. And it is decided, we see here in verse 1, that Paul and some other prisoners are going to go under the authority of a centurion named Julius. Now, Julius is a member of the Augustan cohort. Now, what does that mean? It means that Julius is in charge of regular, well-drilled Roman troops. This is not a militia force. This is not the local police. This is not just a bunch of sailors taking cargo. No, these are well-trained military men. And they are going to guard Paul and these prisoners to take them to Rome. And this was a very important job. This was not a job that as a soldier that you messed up. We'll look a bit later at this, but you need to know was a single punishment for losing a prisoner. And that was, if you lost a prisoner, you received their punishment. So if they were potentially subject to the death penalty, and you let them escape, you would lose your life. So these are men who are very aware of the importance of this duty. And they get on board a ship going north toward Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. Now, you may also be surprised that they they seem to just go to this town, Adjmantrium, and they just find a ship. Now, this isn't how we do things nowadays, is it? If the army needs to get from one place to the other, they don't just call up Princess Cruise Lines. They don't get the local shrimp boat and go to one place to the other, right? They call up the Navy, and it's a military ship. But that's not how things worked in the Roman Empire. Much of the shipping was private. There were very few official imperial boats or ships. And so they get on this ship. It's the one that is present. It's not the fastest ship. It's not the biggest ship because we'll see that they they change a bit later. And they go and they sail up toward the coast of Asia. Now they land at a place called Sidon, which is in Phoenicia. And one thing we notice here that Paul has already shown to the the soldiers and to the commander that he is trustworthy. So they let him go out onto land to see his friends and to get some provision. Now, they probably don't send him unaccompanied, but can you imagine letting a prisoner go, even with a guard, to go meet some friends and get some food? This is kind of a semi-official furlough program for Paul. He's trusted to come back. This is something that's important. And then, after he returns, 
they put out to sea and they sail under the lee of Cyprus. Now, if you are like me, you wonder what a lee is. Well, a lee, I am told, is when you sail on the, and I'm not even sure how you say it, the non-windward side of an island. You see, the wind comes and it blows across an island and there are trees, there are mountains, there are hills, and they break up the wind and they soften the gales. And so if you are concerned, especially about sailing into the wind, I don't know if many of you are sailors, but if you don't have the engine that you can turn on to go into the wind, you have to maneuver the boat. And so what they do is they sail on the side of the island away from the wind in order to protect them. Because one of the things we need to know about this journey is this is not the right time to be sailing. From about mid-September on, sailing in the Mediterranean was dangerous. From about mid-November on, it is crazy. No one does it. And they are here sailing in late September, early October. We know this because... Luke tells us later in the text that, in verse 9, that even the fast was already over yet. This is a Jewish festival that was held this year, 59 A.D., on October 5th. Again, the Bible giving us incredible detail. So, they are sailing and trying to get from one place to the other. It's a dangerous time to travel. And so, as they are traveling, they, in verse 6, they change boats. In order to be safer and to be faster, they get on a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. Now, this is a ship carrying, as we'll see later, grain, wheat. Now, the way that power was retained in Rome was not dissimilar to the way it has been retained in Europe through the centuries, or even here. The way that the emperor kept the peace in Rome was he gave things to people. He kept the crowds quiet by giving them the famous cry of the Roman Empire, bread and circuses. And the only way that they could provide all of this bread was to bring grain up from Egypt. Egypt was the grain, was the farm basket of the Roman Empire. And because this was so important, because if the mob or the people of Rome did not get their free food, they revolted and overthrew emperors for new emperors, the Roman army took over the grain shipments. They were in charge of all of the shipments from Alexandria to Rome. And so they get on this big ship and they say, you're going to take us as well and our prisoners. And the captain really doesn't have much of a choice. And so they begin then to go, and you can almost imagine they're traveling, the skies are darker, the waves are a bit higher, the wind is a bit swirlier, and the sailors and the non-sailors are probably starting to get a bit nervous. And Paul walks up in verse 10, and he says to the centurion, I think this is not so good of an idea to keep going. Why don't we stay right where we are here? After all, the place is called Fair Haven. What could be better? What harbor, what haven could be better than the good harbor, than Fair Haven? 
Now, you can imagine the reaction from the captain. I've got food here that could spoil. I've got a big payday waiting for me at Rome. You imagine the soldiers. I don't want to stay here. There are no bars. There are no restaurants. There's nothing to do here. Fair Havens is one of the most boring places in all of the empire. Let's just keep going. We can do it. But Paul says, I really don't think this is wise. Now, we may wonder, why does Paul say this? How does he get to say this? And I think we may be tempted to say, well, it's Paul. God told him about the shipwreck. He's letting him know. And I think if we do that, we distance ourselves from the text a little bit. Because in reality, Paul is using what you and I both have. Expertise. Experience. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.25 that he has been shipwrecked not once, not twice, but three times. You could almost imagine Paul, as his advice is rejected, going back to his friends Luke and Aristarchus and saying, well, they didn't listen to me. Let me tell you, it is no fun to bob in the salty sea hanging onto a piece of wood. Been there, done that. Don't like it. I do not have a good feeling about this. Look at, this is not a time to be traveling. But Paul really doesn't have any say in the matter. So there's a first point, I think, of application for us. Have you ever been in a situation where you know what you're talking about? Where you have some level of expertise, but someone just doesn't want to listen to you? Maybe they don't want to listen to you because, you know, you're just a worrywart. Oh, you know how Christians are. They're scared all the time of all this kind of stuff. They're worried about boogeymen jumping out from every rock. You know, I experience that because people look at me and they say, he's the preacher. What does a preacher know about anything but preaching? But you see, Paul here doesn't respond with anger. He doesn't respond with frustration even here. Paul knows or has a good idea of what's going to happen. But he goes along with the circumstances. Because his faith and hope and trust is not in the ship. It's not in the pilot. It's not even in his decision. His faith and hope and trust are in God. And so then they begin to go, and you can just imagine the sailors as they're going. They've got this nice, gentle breeze. Do you see that? They move on, and they're trying to get to a better harbor, and the south wind in verse 13 blows gently. And you can see the sailors saying to themselves, <laughs> Paul, yeah, look at this is a gorgeous day out on the ship. He has no clue what he's talking about. Look how wonderful this is. I'm so glad we didn't listen to him. We're going to make it. Oh, and then we'll have a party. We'll have a great time. Phoenix is so... Let me tell you about the restaurants in Phoenix. Let me tell you all the things that we could do. I'm so glad we didn't listen to Paul. And then something happens that happens to us in our lives too, right? Everything is going along swimmingly and all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes a dark providence. Look at verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster 
struck down from the land. Now, you've got to understand the vividness of this language. The tempestuous wind is the very word that we get typhoon from. And coming down from the land means a typhoon is coming down from Mount Ida, about 8,000 feet in the air, swooping down, picking up this little ship that had been going, you know, slowly, bobbing and weaving, talking. All of a sudden now, the sky is black. Rain is pouring. The wind is rushing. Waves are coming up onto the ship. In an instant... Circumstances have changed 180 degrees. What do they do? Well, they battle. They battle against this northeaster. It's, it's actually a nickname for a wind that sailors have, for a horrible, destructive wind. It comes from a Greek word and a Latin word put together that means north and east. They're frightened to death. They can't even get the boat the small dinghy back up onto the ship. It was trailing behind them by a rope. It's filled up with water. They don't know what to do. They struggle and they get to the protective side of a small island called Cauda. Then they work like madmen. Do you see what they do here? They have just a very few moments and they, with difficulty, bring the boat up. Now you can almost... I want you to imagine, Luke is saying, with difficulty, the boat gets brought up. And Luke is thinking to himself, perhaps even looking at his hands, remembering the blisters. As he, he helped to pull on the rope, because it was all hands on deck. They get this boat up. They manage to undergird the ship. What that means is they took long cables of ropes, and they wind them around the bottom, the hull of the ship, because they're afraid the ship is going to fall apart. And they're trying to use ropes to help keep this ship together. And then they lower the gear. They lower weights to try and slow them down because they are afraid they are going to be pushed to the coast of Africa. Look how far that is on your map. And they know that there are sandbars and quicksand off the coast of Libya. That's the Sirtis. They are frightened to death that they are going to be flung hundreds of miles and destroyed and no one will ever even know how they died. One minute, they're talking about parties. The next minute, circumstances have changed and they are sure that they're going to die. You see, in verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest was upon us, and all hope of our being saved was abandoned. What do you do when you get lost in your car today? If you're like me, you pull out your GPS. And if your GPS doesn't work, you pull out your phone, and you find maps on your phone. Or you call someone, and you have them get on the Internet and find directions. What do you do if you're on a boat? Well, you have this... Amazing thing called a compass. And usually now you have GPSs on boats. We know exactly where we are. Do you know what you do when you're on an ancient boat and you can't see the sun and the stars? You have no idea where you are. It would be as if I told you to come up here and stand here and blindfolded you and asked you to walk neatly in and out of every one of these rows. How long do you think it would be before you 
bashed your knee, stubbed your toe, tripped and fell. They are without hope because they don't have any idea where they are. They don't have any idea where they're going. And they have no way of determining it. Now, I ask you again. You may have never been on a ship. When you did, you may have a compass. But have you ever felt that you have no idea where you are? And no idea where God is taking you? And worse yet, you have no idea how you're going to get there. Does that frighten you? It frightens these people. It frightens them so much that the experienced sailors give up hope. Paul, who is the experienced shipwreck E, and that's about it, preacher, he's the one that has hope, we'll see in a minute. They've all given up. They're walking around, we're dead. We'll never find out where we are. We don't have enough food to last. We'll never survive. Are you tempted to give up when life gets hard? If you are, I would put it to you that it is because you are focused too much on the circumstance, too much on the storm. You are aware of your own limitations and you know that you cannot get yourself through it and so you are tempted to say, I'm done. There's no hope. That's what's happening here to these folks. These sailors are desperate. They're lightening the load. They're dumping precious grain and cargo. And then we see here, actually, they dump what Luke calls the tackle. Now, there's some debate as to what that means. It could be a uh, it, it could be uh, sailing implements. It could be a, a mast that is not being used at the moment. It could be some extra anchors and weights. But the point is, they are so desperate, they're having to dump off some things that they could use later. That they might need later. They're in desperate straits. And so Paul comes up to them in verse 21 and he says, Guys, and I love this because again, this is another example that the Bible people are real people. Because, I don't know about you, but Paul does what I couldn't resist. Guys, I did tell you we should have stayed at the other port. Sorry you didn't listen to me, but everybody knows the words, right? Kids, I told you so. He can't resist. Now, he doesn't stay there, but he can't resist. And then he goes on to be the encouragement here. He says, now listen, there will be no loss of life. God has spoken to me about this. And look at verse 26. He says, but we must run aground on some island. Now, this is again where our visual aid helps us. If you look at your map, and they are driving south of Crete. So, you can find roads to the west of that is Crete. Now, I want you to look between Crete and Italy. What island is there? My map has one, Malta. One. There's only one possible place that they can go aground. It's not like, guys, don't worry about it. I'm sure the Lord will save us. And by the way, there are thousands of islands we could hit. He says, no, I am certain we will be saved. And there's only one place 
But God will take us to that one place. Odds mean nothing with God. The sooner that we learn that, the more joyous a life we will live. And now things have changed. Now they trust Paul. (laughs) Now they say we should listen to his advice. And so what they begin to do then is follow his advice. And they eventually land on this portion of Malta. It's actually now called St. Paul's Bay. One final thing I want you to notice in all of this. Where is the miracle that saved Paul? Where's the angel that kept the ship together? Where is the miraculous beacon of light that guided them exactly to Malta? There isn't one, is there? God is at work here and there is nothing miraculous. There is only the promise that was given to Paul and that is enough to save them. You don't need a miracle. You don't need miraculous circumstantial intervention. You need the Lord. Again, odds mean nothing with God. He is completely in control. Where was God? Can you imagine if you are Paul? Two weeks he is under dark providence. Two weeks they are not able to keep food down. Two weeks they are tossed by the sea. Where is God in the midst of this? You see, when we have dark providences, when we get bad reports from the doctor, when we get laid off from work, when we hear of sickness or death in our families, we tend to think that God is then far away from us. That somehow we have done something that causes Him to blame us and He has run from us and we are hopeless. When in reality, like Paul on this ship, we have every hope because God is there in the midst of the dark providences. That's what the story tells us. Well, it's an exciting story. I would invite you to read through the entirety of the book of Acts in one sitting. It's smaller than the smallest novel you've ever read. probably a chapter of a novel you've read. And you get a feel for the excitement and the movement of God. But we can also take, I think, some lessons home from this. Two things, much more briefly. First, there is hope in this storm. Hope that comes to Paul and to others. Paul has hope in the Lord. Paul is not worried. Paul is not scared. Why is this? Well, first, it's because Paul knows that he belongs to God. Do you notice this on verse 23? He says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. Paul knew he was not his own. He knew God was in charge of his life. And even in the midst of trouble, actually, especially in the midst of trouble, he was God's. So are you, Christian. If you profess Jesus Christ by faith, then you are God's. You are God's like a child is the father's. You are God's like the bride is the groom's. You are God's like the sheep is the shepherd's. Nothing can take you out of the hand of God. This is because God 
has sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Another way of Paul saying, I belong to God, is I was bought with a price. You have value, Christian. In the midst of trials and circumstances, you are the Lord's. Paul also remembered and he believed the promise of God. Do you see that in verse 24? He says, he was told, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. That is the bare promise of God. And Paul takes it to the bank. That's what the believer does. The the greatest example of this, I think, in all of Scripture is Abraham. Abraham is told that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. Abraham is told that the Savior of the world will come through his line. And Abraham has but one child. And God tells him to kill that child. And Abraham says to himself, we know this from Hebrews 11, that if I kill this child, if God has to raise this boy from the dead to keep his promise, he will. Because God never breaks his promise. Not even death breaks God's promise. Ever. Do you have that kind of faith and trust in God's promise? Do you lean upon the Lord? Do you trust what He has said to you in His Word? Do you long to be with Him and know that there will be a day when there is no sickness, no death, no sorrow, because He has promised it? This is what Paul believed. Paul had hope, finally, because he was with God in the storm. God had promised to him and reminded him of that promise. God had reminded him that he belonged to the Lord. And because of that gracious reminder, Paul knew that God was there with him in the midst of his trials and circumstances. The devil wants you to believe that you are alone, Christian. That God is too busy for you. That God has forgotten about you. That God doesn't need you. When the truth of the Scriptures is, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. No matter how black the night, no matter how few the stars, God is with us. Thirdly and finally, Paul takes the next step that we must take as Christians. It is one thing to believe the Lord Jesus Christ and to have hope because of that. But we are not called to be islands of hope. We are called to take that hope to others. You see, Paul has great hope, but he uses that hope to bring encouragement to others in the storm. And do you notice how he does it? First, he is completely not self-focused. There are many things Paul could have done here in this journey. He could have held a pity party. Oh. I'm not guilty of anything. I never did anything wrong. And now I've been sitting in jail for two years. And now I'm on this ship. And now this ship's going to sink. And I don't feel well. Why, oh why, oh why? And if we're honest, that's oftentimes what goes on in our lives. And do you know the difference between children and parents in this regard? Children say what I just said. And it annoys us. Mom and dad think it. And they're smart enough not to let it come out their mouth. 
That's why we need the Lord. Paul doesn't have a pity party. He's not filled with anger either. He could be very angry and frustrated about the false accusations, about not being listened to. Instead, do you know what Paul is doing? Look at verse 24. Do not be afraid. God has granted you all those who sail with you. What Paul has been doing is praying. Praying for the other 275 people on that ship. Is that your response to hard circumstances? Is your response to the sadness that you feel in our nation, especially at this time of year, to simply post whining rants on Facebook? Now, sometimes we've got to let it out. I understand that. We're not perfect. But I think too often we think that's our only job. As Christians, our job is to tell people how miserable the world is, how immoral the world is. But then we sound like those who have no hope. You see, Paul is praying for blessing upon those who are with him. And God grants his prayer. But secondly, Paul does something else that we need to learn from. Paul provides practical leadership. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good? act opposite of that. Paul is the only one paying attention here. Paul says, you know what? You guys got to eat. You need strength. Paul says, you see those guys over there? The sailors we need to land this ship, they're trying to sneak off. Julius, go get after them. Come on, guys. Take encouragement. He's, He's gone from prisoner to leader. That's what we are called to do as well. We're called to provide encouragement. We're called to provide wisdom. We see that when Paul tells them to eat in verse 33. And we're called to provide action. We see that when Paul avoids disaster in verse 31 when he says, if they take that boat, we're lost. We need them. This is the way that Paul leads. Thirdly and finally... Paul is an encouragement to others around him because he is a source of blessing to them. Every single one of these were saved because of Paul. It is a truism from the Scripture that God blesses communities, nations, and people for the sake of His people. Are you going to be a blessing to those around you at work? At school, in your neighborhood, in your country. You see, Christians are a source of blessing to people. I've told you the stories. Christians invented hospitals. Every major university was founded by the church, by Christians seeking to found seminaries. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown. The church is indeed salt as well as light. Are you seeking to be salt today? To bless others around you? What do you think the reaction was of these sailors to Paul's blessing? I want to tell you something. And perhaps this will help you as you struggle with your own circumstances. I can almost guarantee that some of these men, six months later, completely forgot about Paul. They could care less about him. 
There are some folks here that this life-changing event made no difference at all in their life. There are some probably who credited others. When they had conversations about this later, they probably said, oh, it was, it was the great God Poseidon that saved us. Do you remember? But there were some that were affected by the work of God through the Apostle Paul, through his hope and his encouragement, there were some that came face to face with the Savior. That is why we live the lives that we do. That is why we experience the pain that we do. That we might bring people face to face with the Savior. Let's pray.